0: All right, so you, you may remember, we, we've been in the, in the Gospel of John chapter 21. Um, it was supposed to be for one week, and I, I made the executive decision to uh, go two weeks because I thought there was too much for one sermon in that one week's material. Uh, so we we're supposed to get back on the lecture this week. But there's these couple little verses that happen after the story that in the Gospel of John that for some reason just really stuck out to me. And the group of pastors I met with, we kind of talked about it a lot a couple weeks ago. And uh, why it is you would end the gospel in this way, and it just it just stuck with me. And and I've never preached on these verses. They're not part of the lectionary text. They're just kind of a an aside. It seems like, but for some reason they stuck with me. So uh, we are way off the reservation, y'all. We are two weeks off the lectionary here, and it's this kind of wild and crazy, unpredictable stuff. Is the reason why you come to a church, uh, whose name you can't even spell. So. Um, yeah, we're gonna, so we're going to uh, continue in John 21, and after this, there's no place left in John to go to, so I guess we'll have to get back on the lectionary track or something. Um, but again, we, we've been in here for two weeks. You may remember two weeks ago, uh, we uh, saw the scene of the disciples uh, post-resurrection back fishing, uh, kind of going back to life as they had known before, not quite sure what to do, um, uh, disoriented, doing what people do in situations like that, which is go back to what's familiar, go back to what you know. And as they were doing that, uh, unsuccessfully, they are fishing. Uh, Peter's idea to go fishing, uh, it turns out he was fishing naked, which again, we don't know if he told the disciples that before they were in the boat or if that was uh, you know, something he pulled on them once they were in the boat. But they're out there fishing and they're very unsuccessful. Nothing caught all night long because you, know, you fish at night. And then from the shore, someone calls out, have you caught anything, my children? Um, they recognize that it's Jesus. He tells them to throw over the right side of the boat. They haul in all these giant fish. Peter puts on his clothes, jumps in the water, swims to Jesus, and, and, and recognizes the risen Lord. The third time, Jesus has appeared to the disciples in the Gospel of John. And that first week, we talked about that idea of Jesus showing up in those things we've done a thousand times, in those moments where it's easy to not see that it is sacred, to not understand it to be important because we've done it a million times. Jesus showing up, God's abundance showing up, and what that means for us, right? And then last week, we continued on in that story where Peter then has this encounter with Jesus around the charcoal fire. We talked about the importance of that charcoal fire because there's one other place where there's a charcoal fire mentioned, and it's where Peter stands around after Jesus rested and denies Christ three times. And so Jesus uh, has this charcoal fire on the shore waiting for them with fish and bread, which in a lot of ancient Christian iconography represented the communion, even though there wasn't a wine cup. It's basically a communion table. And he begins to ask him three times, do you love me? And Peter answers correctly three times in this way of Jesus kind of providing an opportunity uh, for Peter to uh, reconcile himself, to answer correctly the things that he denied three times before, right? And then each time when he answers correctly, Jesus reminds him that his love of God is tethered to the love of neighbor. Feed my sheep, care for my sheep, feed my sheep, right? And that's what we talked about. We talked about it always ends the table. It always ends at at the place where God gives to us and where we bring what we have been given for the benefit of each other, where we are fed in order to feed is what we talked about last week. And this is, of course, this kind of ending at the table and this kind of way of looking at each other in the world. Um, The function of this table uh, was a particularly poignant part of the early church, right? It is one of those things that set them apart. It is the place for those who would otherwise be told that they don't belong near each other or in each other's homes or around the same table, that they do, in fact, belong to each other. It is a place where we're reminded that we belong to God and to our neighbor. This open table that the early Christians practiced is simultaneously what made the church so attractive and why it grew so fast, and it's also what made it so offensive to those who uh, benefited from the way society was structured. Right. It's, a, it's in a large part what gathered converts and created martyrs. It was that open table. Uh, And it should still be what the church is known for, right? We should still be known as a place where everyone is welcome, where anyone can come, where no matter where you're coming from, no matter what station you may be in life, no matter how much of a failure you may seem like, uh, or whether or not the people in the room are the kinds of people that you should be hanging out, quote unquote, the church is the place where all are welcome. But it's hard to have a truly open table. The church has struggled with this ever since. Right? And this next little scene, I think, this short exchange between Jesus and Peter that follows in this scene helps explain why this is so hard. Right? After all that's just happened, Peter, the denier, has been reconciled. He's been redeemed. He's been given this mission by the risen Christ. Then Jesus alludes to his eventual death as a martyr. You know, Someone else will put the belt on you and lead you where you do not want to go. If there wasn't that parenthetical from the narrator there telling us that this is about the death he's going to have, you might just think, oh, it's about getting old, right? Because that's certainly kind of true in the larger sense. But he learns kind of the good news and bad news of what it's going to mean to be a disciple of Christ. And it says this, and I'm not going to read the entire text we read earlier because we're going to focus on one little part here. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the disciple who Jesus loved, is that's the name throughout the gospel of John. Now I was always t- brought up to believe that was John. Uh, modern interpreters tech will kind of say well technically it doesn't say that we don't know that for sure but I don't, it doesn't really matter to me whether it is or it's not but throughout the gospel it is the one that Jesus loved following them. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them he was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said Lord who is it that's going to betray you when Peter saw him he said to Jesus Lord what about him Jesus said to him If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. And I'm going to go ahead and stop there. There's some more stuff after, but we're not going to get into that. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. He said, Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. What is that to you? Follow me. That's what I want to talk about tonight. Peter, the recipient of so much grace and so much love, he's learned the good and bad news of becoming a disciple. Then he turns and sees the one who's literally named the disciple Jesus loved throughout the gospel. That's a good. We talked about bad nicknames the last couple of weeks. That's a good nickname, right? The disciple Jesus loved. That's what he's. That's what he's called. And Peter asks, "What about him?" Now, in fairness, we don't really know Peter's uh, attitude here. Right? We, we, it's hard to read motive into what he's saying. Is, is he have, does he have genuine concern that one of his friends might be martyred too? Is he jealous? Is there a sense of competition? Is he just being nosy because he likes to know everything about everyone? I don't know. I will say that if it was jealousy, who could blame him, right? Especially with that nickname. Like, I, there's, there's two kids in my house growing up, and if everyone had referred to my sister not as Sherry, But the child that Arlene and John loved, (laughs) I probably would have grown up with a fair amount of jealousy and sense of competition with her, right? We don't know his intent in asking that question, right? But kind of the, the point here is so I need to feed the sheep. I am going to follow you. I'm going to die a martyr's death. What about the one you love, right? What about him? I would argue, and tonight I, I, I would say that there may not be a more poisonous phrase for us to entertain, no better way to kill good news than those words. What about them? What about him? What about her? What about them has muddied or directly ruined so much that should be good in human life? Comparison. right? Comparison is that poison pill that most of us are addicted to self Administering. If I made a list of some of my deepest wounds and deepest insecurities, I haven't because I'd like you to come back. But if I made a list of those things, many of them, if I'm honest, would be the direct result of comparison. Some kind of comparison that I've made up that I keep subjecting myself to for no good reason. And maybe I'm just telling on myself here because, um, you know, it's been a deep struggle for me personally. But I bet I'm not alone in this unfortunate truth, that very often, too often, my sense of well-being, satisfaction are far too dependent on comparison. The same reality can be the best of news or the worst of news. Is that mine? That's a fire alarm. Someone want to step out and make sure we don't actually need to leave? (laughs) Are we good all right let's uh yeah jared knows things let's send him out there that's it we can, we can feel confident if for some reason we do have to leave you can go out these side doors as well is it okay with you if i just keep talking until someone tells us that something's uh actually wrong we got the we got the mayor and a police officer out there i mean if this if this doesn't uh, work out i don't know i don't know what to, we're just we're just not ready what was i saying about insecurities and and uh, okay Oh, say what? All right, we're good. Sounds good. There's very little wood in here. We should be fine even if there isn't. <laughs> That's how it works, right? Um, it was I, I feel like the same reality, the same thing can be either the best news or the worst news dependent solely on how it compares to those around me, right? So I want you to think about maybe you at your job. Now, maybe you get along perfectly with everyone at your job, but let's assume there's some people that you don't get along with well and your boss came in to you and said, congratulations, you've been doing great work, I want you to know that we're giving you, effective immediately, a 10% raise. You would think, that is good news, that is great news, right? That's another 30, $40,000 a year, depending on, you know. <laughs> you get a 10% raise, great news, and they said, oh, also, uh, they probably wouldn't call them this, but also the person you dislike the most and does the least work in your eyes, they're getting a 15% raise, and suddenly, it's bad news. It's the same amount of money. It means the same thing to you. But once comparison gets in there, it changes the values that are at stake, right? So even the best of news can be ruined by this sense of comparison. After all, how do I know if I'm winning if I don't keep my eye on the opponents and measure myself by them? You can't win if you don't compete. And I am at my most deeply miserable self when I am stuck in that kind of comparison. And my guess is I'm probably not alone. Now, granted... This is probably in part uh, for me because I don't compare too well on a lot of those things. I may not be a good, you know, good uh, competition. But still, I'm at my darkest when I'm trying to measure up to some perceived success of those around me. And even if you are a better competitor than me, even if you are measuring up well, I don't think it brings you genuine joy, even if you're winning. Beautiful. That silence is nice, right? When we do this, when we get into this competition, when we get into the what about thems, we miss so much. We don't appreciate the blessings that our lives are filled with on a daily basis. We don't do the things we want to do because we're too scared about how it compares to those around you. I am convinced there are two types of people at a wedding, those who dance and those who wish they were dancing. Why don't you actually dance at the wedding? Comparison keeps us from doing those things. You don't dance freely. Uh, you don't dance freely and badly at the wedding, which is what a wedding is for. It may be Mississippi hot out, but you're not going to get in that pool. Right? We miss the good things. They magically uh, you know, become bad things because of comparison. Why? Why do we do this to ourselves? all for some imaginary standards or the competition that we are the ones constantly inventing. We make up rules, we make up opponents, we make up scores that don't actually exist, and our happiness gets dependent upon them. And we wonder why we so often feel so anxious and dissatisfied. And to this, and to even a cursory glance over our shoulder at the one we fear may be more loved than us, to that Jesus says, what is that to you? What is it to you? That's a good word to close out this gospel on, I think. What is it to you? In other words, stop it. There's nothing of value down that path. You have no control over that. There's no reason to spend any time on it. None of it is real. You don't even know enough to make an actual comparison. And even if you did, to what end? What prize do you think you're winning at the end of it? What are exactly are we hoping is the result of this imaginary competition we've made up it's an entirely false problem that we invent and suffer under what is it to us really it's a good word but it's not the last word he says he doesn't just end with what is it to you he follows with the more important and emphatic there's probably an exclamation point based on the Greek in your, uh, in your English translation he doesn't just say what is it to you he follows it with follow me what is that to you? Follow me. And there could not be a more important addendum to that. Don't worry about them. You follow me. You follow with your life because that is the most you are capable of and the only thing you are accountable to. You follow with your life. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that is your one real task here and now on this earth. And that is that you live your life the way you should live your life. What is anything else to you? And I know it's hard for us to hear this, especially as Americans, but there is absolutely not a competition. You were not here to win, whatever that means. You were not here to beat the person to your left or to your, your right. And you are certainly not here to be their referee. As people of faith, we are here to follow Christ with our lives, which is, again, all you can handle, anyways. So, what is it to us how anyone else compares? We have to live our lives. I know I've talked about this before, but in the midst of the big WWJD craze, which some of you are too young for, but everyone had bracelets. Someone made a bunch of money on it. What Would Jesus Do was a thing we all talked about. And during that time, I was exposed to a writer named Dallas Willard who is like my, one of my favorite writers now. I just, uh, he's passed since, but he's, his books are incredible and they've formed me a lot. And in one of his books, and I couldn't find it real quick this week. Uh, I've marked up all of his books too much. It's hard to find things now. But he emphasized in one of his books that there was nothing particular about the circumstances of Jesus' life that made it better or easier for him to do what he did in his life. In other words, Jesus wasn't Christ because uh, he happened to be a Palestinian male from Nazareth during this time uh, to a blue-collar family under the thumb of Rome during these years. Those happened to be his particularities, just like every human being has particularities. He was able to be fully God and fully human within those things. But, and I had never heard this or thought about this before, but Dallas Willard says in his book, Christ could just have easily have accomplished a life of perfect discipleships in your particularities. He argued that the question was not, how do I live like Jesus? In other words, how do I live like a carpenter turn, you know, year zero? That's when he was born, right? Year zero? Uh, in, in, in Nazareth, how do, I, how do I do that? That's not the question. The question is less how do I live like Jesus because you can't go back and do that. The more important question we need to ask ourselves is how would Jesus live my life? How would Jesus be fully God and fully human in my particularities? If Christ was in my life, in my circumstances, if Christ had my family in my job, if Christ had my diagnosis, if Christ had my identity, my heartbreak, my strengths, my weaknesses, how would Christ live this life? And that is what discipleship is. Because we are called to live our lives, to follow with the lives we have. This is the essence of what it means to live a Christian life, I think. Don't worry about the people to your left or to your right. We're still feeding the sheep. We still care for each other, but we are not comparing ourselves to each other. There is no comparison. There is no competition. You follow with your life. They have to follow with theirs. This is I don't know I, I don't know if you have as hard a time with this as I do. This is one of the most deeply difficult things to wrap my mind around. And because it can be very difficult, I wanted to end with a kid's book tonight. Because whenever things are too difficult, you should always find a kid's book. That helps make it simple. I just got—I almost got an amen out of out of you on that one, Catherine. I saw that. Uh, <laughs> speaking your language now. So there's this, uh, a book called The Empty Pot. I'm not sure if uh, if y'all have read it before. It's based on like a Chinese proverb or something, I think, or Chinese fairytale. And uh, I, I tried to—I couldn't get it here in time. And then I remember I had a friend who had a, who uh, had told me about the book and told me the story one time. And so I said, do you have a copy of the book? And he said, yeah. And when I went to it, he said, just so you know, when I ordered it, I didn't really look at the measurements on the book. I don't even know why you make a book this size. But this is the empty pot. And as I'm holding it right now, I'm realizing, I don't know how you do that teachery thing where you like hold it like this and show it to everyone and talk at the same time. I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to try and read to you the empty pot. <laughs> yeah, it's true, yeah. If I would have been really thinking ahead of time, I would have gone ahead and gotten like a sweater and some slippers to put on and just really Mr. Roger'd this whole thing. But I, wait, maybe I can use... Oh, see, look at that. All right. <clears throat> All right, kids, are you ready? Now, we've got pictures that will show up up here. Uh, that you may, b- <laughs> this is probably bigger than those screens so I'm not sure you need that well, we're going to read The Empty Pot I also should have gotten some with a really good elementary school teachery voice to do this I'm sorry, I, I messed up, next time I get a giant children's book I'll do better, okay, The Empty Pot and there is another version of this that's not by this author, Demi uh, and it's terrible, they leave things out, it's not good so don't read that one if you go and get it, read this one all right we ready kids okay how do you not block the book and show it to people okay this is why i couldn't be elementary school teacher a long time ago in china there was a boy named ping who loved flowers anything he planted burst into bloom up came flowers bushes and even a big fruit tree as if by magic oh boy all right that's a half a mile away i can't read okay Everyone in the kingdom loved flowers, too. They planted them everywhere, and the air smelled like perfume. The emperor loved birds and animals, but the flowers most of all, and he tended his own garden every day. But the emperor was very old. He needed to choose a successor successor to the throne. Who would the successor be? And how would the emperor choose? Because the emperor loved flowers so much, he decided to let the flowers choose. The next day, a proclamation was issued. All the children in the land were to come to the palace. There would be a, uh, they would all be given a special flower seed by the emperor. Whoever can show me their best in a year's time, he said, will succeed me to the throne. This news created great excitement throughout the land. Children from all over the country swarmed to the palace to get their flower seeds. All the parents wanted their children to be chosen emperor, and all the children hoped that they would be chosen too. When Ping received his seed from the emperor, he was the happiest child of all. He was sure he could grow the most beautiful flower. Ping filled the flower pot with rich soil, and he planted the seed in it very carefully. He watered it every day. He couldn't wait to see it sprout and grow and blossom into a beautiful flower. Day after day passed, but nothing grew in his pot. Ping was very worried. He put new soil in a bigger pot. Then he transferred the seed into the rich black soil. Another two months he waited. Still nothing happened. By and by the whole year passed. Spring came and all the children put on their best clothes to greet the emperor. There's one little naked kid here I like, which is like he just threw his clothes on the ground like a kid throwing a fit. This feels very realistic to me as a father of an almost (laughs) three-year-old. They rushed to the palace with their beautiful flowers, eagerly hoping to be chosen. Ping was ashamed of his empty pot. He thought the other children would laugh at him because for once he couldn't get a flower to grow. His clever friend ran by, holding a great big plant. Ping, he said, you're not really going to go to the emperor with an empty pot, are you? Couldn't you grow a great big flower like mine? I've grown lots of flowers better than yours, Ping said. It's just this seed won't grow. Ping's father overheard this, and he said, you did your best, and your best is good enough to present to the emperor. Holding the empty pot in his hand, Ping went straight away to the palace. The emperor was looking at the flowers slowly, one by one. How beautiful all the flowers were. But the emperor was frowning and did not say a word. Finally, he came to Ping. Ping hung his head in shame expecting to be punished the emperor asked him why did you bring me an empty pot ping started to cry and replied I planted the seed you gave me and I watered it every day but it didn't sprout I put it in a better pot with better soil but it still didn't sprout I tended it all year long but nothing grew so today I had to bring you an empty pot without a flower it was the best I could do When the emperor heard this, when the emperor heard these words, a smile slowly spread over his face. And he put his arm around Ping. Then he exclaimed to one and all, I have found him. I have found the one person worthy of being emperor. Where you got your seeds from, I do not know. For the seeds I gave you had all been cooked, so it was impossible for them to grow. I admire Ping's great courage to appear before me with the empty truth. And now I reward him with my entire kingdom and make him emperor of the land. That's a pretty good kinship, right? Please, yeah, please. It's a great story, isn't it? tell you, a complicated enough idea. There's a good kid book out there that'll boil it down for you. Stop worrying what's in other people's flower pots. Stop worrying what's on other people's flower pots. You don't know their, know their story. You don't know the facts. I like this story because it, I think it, it, it talks about wherever it is you are at, right? I don't know your circumstances. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know your strengths, weaknesses. I don't know what your story is. But your call is to water the seed and the soil you've been given. Water the seed in the soil you've been given. Tend to your flower pot, regardless of how it might compare to those around you. Be faithful to your life that you have been given, and feel no shame about your relative success or failure. Tend to your own pot. Because I believe, and this overlaps well with the book, I believe that if you listen to the king and tend honestly to what is yours, and you were doing all the king ever wanted you to do in the first place. Let's pray. God, we confess that this is not, um, this is not something that comes easily to us. That even in small ways, probably when we walked into this room tonight, we started comparing ourselves to others. God, we ask that we might really root ourselves, truly root ourselves in your grace. As those who have received every opportunity, every opportunity to make good on every denial we've ever made as people who have been so loved by you without condition that we have been given a call and a mission in this world despite the fact that we are probably not qualified to do it. God, may we root ourselves in that place and may we stop looking over our shoulders and asking what about them? Lord, teach us to follow you with our lives. So that we may stop losing this competition that we've made up in the first place. God, we do love you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.